of you know that we joined this fellowship uh, just after Christmas two years ago. And so we were just trying to learn the ropes, who was who and how everything worked. And then they informed me that this was a Regents Beyond Church. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's a nice way to call a church, Regents Beyond. Of course, I've been living for 52 years in uh, the Middle East and the Far East. And so England, for me, certainly was the Regents Beyond. So, yeah, well-named, the Regents Beyond. And, uh, but then a moment came. We're still in, locked into Zoom, and we were sitting at home in our pajamas and trying to be spiritual. And, and uh, Emmanuel came on the screen, and we didn't know who it was going to be. But that particular Sunday, they did a special gathering together of the regions beyond churches around the world. And, uh, and I confess, I was kind of not too excited. I was waiting for a, a real stirring message, and here it was just these shots around the world. And then somebody came on screen that looked Asiatic, and I can't remember what his name is. It's probably better if we don't say his name in public for security reasons. But he said, um, I'm Bhutanese. I suddenly sat up in my chair because I knew Bhutan, Bhutan was very special because I've been in India. And he said, um, during COVID, we have been out ministering to people uh, in our kingdom. And uh, the government has recognized us and uh, acknowledged us publicly for what we're doing. And we have a church now in Bhutan. And uh, the rest of the thing just went, I'm just thinking, I'm in Durham, Emmanuel Fellowship, the regions beyond. I really thought it was just a euphemism this is no longer a euphemism. This, this local body is related to a church in Bhutan. There are no missionaries. There's a Bhutanese who wants to help people and share Jesus. And there, now there are believers gathering together. Do you think that's wonderful? I think it's stupendous. Now, in my pocket, I have a tiny cross that looks like this. And I want somebody, before anybody gets onto Google, I want them to come up and take this from me and place it on the map where Bhutan is. You didn't look at Google, did you? Does she know where it is? It's a very small country. It's (laughs) 
It's totally Buddhist. There are no Baptist churches, no Anglican churches, no Pentecostal churches. It's, it's alles verboten. But here is a Bhutanese who says, I'm going to live for Jesus and represent him. And he's doing good works, so much so that the government recognizes him. They haven't imprisoned him. They haven't shut him down. He's just a Bhutanese doing what a follower of Jesus would do. So I think that's tremendous. Now you can look, at, you can look it up on Google now. You'll find out that Bhutan claims and boasts that they are the poorest country in the world. <laughs> we are the poorest country in the world. But we are also the happiest. And they have a register of what makes you happy. So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to know their register, look on Bhutan. They're the poorest and happy. And they, they claim the two things go together. But of course, we in the West would disagree with that, wouldn't we? Now, um, I'm going to hang a few words this morning on three verses. So it's like three, three legs of a tripod. And I'm going to give the secret away at the beginning what these three verses are because I'm not going to put them on the screen. You're going to have to remember them. And I'm doing that deliberately. Um, when I was a university student many years ago, uh, I had a professor who came in and said, put your notebooks away. And I knew he was going to give a lecture full of facts and figures from the word go. He said, put your notebooks away. I don't want a single person to write anything. You've got to use your brains. And at the end of this lecture, you can write down everything that you can remember. That was it. And so we're going to do that today. No, no, pen, no, no pencils and papers. Just to, just to let you know when this uh, fact happened, the, this was in the days when universities had blackboards. And on these blackboards, you have one. I'm amazed. And, and, we, and they use chalk. They still do. All right. Well, that's, that, that is gratifying that they still have blackboards and chalk in Durham University. So I am very pleased. So my first verse is Psalms 2, 7, and 8. And this is a very famous psalm. And it appears again in the first prayer of the first church in Jerusalem when they're crying out to God. So they must have known this psalm very well. And it's talking about the Father uh, giving everything to his Son. And this is a conversation that happened perhaps 16 billion years ago because the, the astrophysicists have now figured out that our, our universe is actually a little bit older than 16 billion years. But the theologians are still arguing about did it happen then or did it happen later? Was Jesus the Son of God before everything be began or at a certain point? And we won't know the answer to that until we get to the gates of heaven. So that's Psalm 2, 7 and 8. The Father is giving his Son an inheritance. And we're going to be talking about inheritance 
this morning. The second verse comes from Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul makes the amazing proclamation that we, you and me and all of us in Jesus, are co-heirs. We inherit everything that the Son has. But we already know from Psalm 2 that the Son has everything that the Father has. So what do we end up with as co-heirs? We end up with everything. And we're going to be talking about what that everything includes. And then finally, just to keep you on the edges of your seat, verse number 3 is Matthew 24, 14. And in this verse, hiding right in the open is the answer to what everyone is wanting to know. The end of the world. When is it going to happen? And how is it going to happen? Well, this morning, before you leave that front door, you're going to know when the world is going to end and how it's going to end. So please stay awake. Now, let's go back and read Psalm 2, 7, and 8. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, so this is Jesus talking about what the Father said to him. This is a, they're reporting a dialogue in time and space. This, is, this gives me tingles to have a dialogue recorded between Father and Son in eternity. You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. So I want us to look at the word nations. Is God going to give Jesus all of these nations? Well, we'd have to say yes. We'd have to take it at face value. Yes. All of these nations belong to the Son. That's amazing in itself. But when we look at the original word, and I'm not professing to know Hebrew, because my wife went on to Google, and she found out that the word there for nations is goyum, which means the Gentiles. And this is also amazing, because the Jews consider the Psalms their book. This is written for us, the Jewish people. And yet, right in the beginning of the Psalms, God is proclaiming to his son, I'm going to give you not just the Jewish nation, but the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles. So that's, that gives us a chance, doesn't it? Because you and I, unless we're Jews, we are, we are the goyim. And, uh, and he's going to give an inheritance. Now, I looked up inheritance in, a, in the concordance, and I counted... 178 times that inheritance is listed. All the same word, inheritance. And, but it's exclusively used with tangible, real property. Real property. And it was mostly the distribution of land to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is your inheritance. 
This is your inheritance. Why haven't you taken your inheritance over the river? Why haven't you conquered the Anakites? That is your inheritance. You've got to go in and conquer the land. So this idea, God using the word inheritance with his son, must have not metaphysical ephemeral meaning, but real meaning for the son. And if we are co-heirs in that promise, which we'll look at a minute in Romans, then we are also inheritors of something that is real and tangible, not something uh, mystical that we can explain away. So, um, yes, now I wanted, to, I wanted to tell you that Alice and I have just come into an inheritance. But uh, before we give our phone number away to anybody, um, it's a small inheritance. Uh, I won't tell you exactly how much it was. <laughs> uh, it wasn't enough inheritance to buy a new car. In fact, we love the car we drive, even though my wife says it's, it has a clunky suspension system because it's a minivan. So there it is. We love it, our minivan. And so we began to... But after we got that inheritance from a dear sister who passed away, and we keep thinking of her even more dearly, and we think about what an inheritance can really mean. Um, And so we uh, are going to... uh, go on now and, and realize that um, Jesus is going to have all of this, all of these nations, and the Goyim, and us. And, um, but someone has said, well, maybe he, maybe, maybe he didn't take his father up on it because the father said, you have to ask me. So, That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Um, But later we see that in Psalm 98, 2, it says, The Lord has made his salvation known. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then it goes on in Isaiah 24. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. So it's obvious that that Jesus did ask the Father, but we don't get that part of the dialogue in Scripture. We just hear the Father saying, you can ask for all of this, and I'll give it to you. Now, we're going to go on to Romans eight fifteen, And here, Paul, under divine inspiration, writes to the church in Rome. Remember, Rome was the capital of the world, the largest city in the world, the city of culture, the city of all roads lead to Rome. Even, even in London, we have some straight roads, and they say, yeah, the Romans built them. If it's straight, it's a Roman road. And so Paul, in writing the book to Rome, he had a revelation almost as earth-shattering 
as his Damascus experience. And we're going to read about that in a minute. Uh, By the way, I was just uh, talking to someone before the meeting. I went to a barber in a village near us because the last time I went there, there there was a Turk there and I could talk to him. This time I went, the Turk was gone and a Syrian was there from Damascus. So we were able to talk to him about the Damascus Road and the transformation. And he said, that's very interesting. If you come again, I told him that that the uh, Arabic New Testament exists. He said, yes, if you come again with one of those, you can have a free haircut. So, there it is. So, so we're going to look at Romans, this amazing revelation that God gave to him. And it says in Romans 8, 15 through 17, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So far, so good. That's okay, isn't it? We're all all right. Now, verse 17 is the clinch. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Well, that is saying something. If indeed we suffer, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That is an earthquake-type statement. That is a Damascus Road-type statement. And I have often thought about how the first church responded to that. How did the, how did the first church think about this? Was it too hard for them to deal with? So if you will humor me for just a moment, I have written out my fanciful version of how the church in Rome responded to this letter to Rome. Would you indulge me in my fancy for a moment? We're going to go to the city of Corinth, and the year is A.D. 57. A.D. 57. Paul had just put away his kit in his Corinth tent shop when the young man he had selected to take his letter to Rome ducked through the entrance. Paul had chosen this young man for the journey not only because he was well-traveled and quick-witted, but because he was a graduate of the local rabbinical school and had memorized the Pentateuch. It seemed that he had a photographic memory, and Paul wanted him to learn the text of his letter in order in case it fell into the wrong hands. Indeed, he had memorized it, and to demonstrate, he reeled off a long passage about being co-heirs with Christ. Paul stopped him with, very good, but you don't have to imitate my voice. When you arrive, just read it naturally. With that, the messenger boarded a commercial vessel for Rome. Having sewn Paul's letter 
into the lining of his tunic. Seasickness hit a fair share of the passengers who hung over the railings, desperately trying to get rid of their dinners. This This afforded our messenger the opportunity to also stand at the railings and recite Paul's letter verbatim with much feeling into the wind. Upon arriving in Rome, he went immediately to a tent repair shop, which had a trap door in its rear opening onto a dank staircase into the famed catacombs. After a deep descent and taking several turns that Paul had described, he came upon an enlargement where a group of about 20 followers of the way had gathered. Some knew the messenger and embraced him accordingly. When the rest learned he had come straight from Paul in Corinth with with a written message for them, it became one great scrum, everyone wanting to hug and warmly greet the messenger. After things had settled down, the messenger began with the text. When he got as far as to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The messenger was interrupted by subdued cheers. It was common knowledge that loud voices could carry up to the Roman legions. The leader of the group motioned for the messenger to continue. People moved around a bit, trying to make themselves comfortable, careful not to lean against walls dripping with moisture. One well-presented lady was sitting on a rather large wicker basket. Someone whispered to the messenger, she's from Caesar's household. The messenger indicated that they had reached the midpoint of the letter and suggested they take a break. They all murmured excitedly, carry on. He cleared his throat and continued. The torches stuck in the crevices of the walls were flickering dimly by this time. However, most had figured out that the messenger was delivering Paul's epistle by memory. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, suddenly one of the older Jewish men interrupted. Paul, you've gone too far. Look at these two runaway Gentile slaves. Yes, they are welcome to our meetings, but they're uncircumcised. The slaves, feeling all eyes focused on them, began to back away down the tunnel. No, retorted the passenger. This is not Paul speaking. It's God's word. Slaves and free, Gentiles and Jew in Jesus, inherit all of God's kingdom. There was an awkward moment of silence. The leader finally spoke up. 
Yes, these are the true words of God. We can all be co-heirs of all that was promised to Abraham, our father. Let's have a break and share bread and wine as Jesus taught us. But first, is there anything that has to be put right? Trembling, the older Jew crossed over to the slaves and embraced them, saying, Because of Jesus, you with us are co-heirs in God's kingdom. After prayers of thanksgiving and sharing the Lord's table, the well-dressed lady stood up and quietly announced that she had brought a few things from the palace kitchen. Several, including the slaves, had not eaten anything substantial for some time. They gladly shared the royal provisions from the wicker basket. The narrative then continued right to the personal endings, greetings at the end. Prayers of thanks were said. Then the leader of the group motioned to the messenger to follow him. In a whisper, he said, we must go deeper. Very few knew the way down to the lower levels of the catacombs, and for good reason. After many tricky turns and crawl spaces, they presented themselves in a large chamber with scribes busy writing at a dozen tables. The messenger was introduced and without any extended formalities was asked to recite the letter to Rome. This was production of God's word on an industrial scale. The leader then explained that Matthew's letter and a few others had been copied here and gone to every corner of the empire. Within days, this Roman letter also would wing its way to regions beyond. Well, thank you for bearing with me. That's my idea of what happened. I'm sure it was a little bit different from that, aren't you? I'm sure. Now, um, we're going to go on to Matthew 24, 14. And... uh, This is what we've all been waiting for, the end of the world. How is it going to happen? And when is it going to happen? So the answer is hiding in plain sight in Matthew 24, 14, which I will now read to you. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's very simple, isn't it? So how is it going to end? When is it going to end? Uh, Shall I read it again to you? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this word nations here is not the goyim word, that we saw in uh, Psalms 2. It's actually a word that we understand in English. It's ethnos. This gospel will be preached to every ethnos, and then the end will come. Now, if we look at this map, how many people, how many, uh, how many of these 
peoples or nations that are members of the United Nations? Give me a, give me a figure. Remember the, the Paris Climate Accord when they were getting up to almost everybody and the, the last one wouldn't sign up and almost everybody in the world had signed up to climate change in Paris. I think the number then was 198 and there was one more and I, think, I'm, I don't think they got over 200. So there's roughly 200 recognized nations in the, in the United Nations and they all have a right to stand up and make a speech. Even Bhutan. Bhutan can stand up and say, we are the happiest. <laughs> and then everybody's, yeah, we know, we know. You're also the, you're also the poorest nation. <laughs> so, but, but here, ethnos throws us a curve, or a Google, as a googly, what they would say. Uh, we're now talking about not 198 people groups. That's easy. We could, we could finish that off tomorrow. But now we're talking about every people group in the world. Now, when I was sitting in class with professors with blackboards and, and chalk, just like John, uh, some clever mission groups got together and said, you know, we've got to figure this out. This isn't nations per se. It's ethnos. How many ethnic groups are there in the world? And if we're going to take this serious, if we want, the, if we want Jesus to come back, uh, we've got to find out and do our homework. And so this was, this was the late 1970s. I was still studying, and my wife was reading the books that I didn't have time to read, and she would pray see them for me. And she does get a lot of credit for, I got a, a sheep, I did get, I did get a sheepskin at the end. Do you use that term here, a sheepskin? Okay, that's the word we use for diploma, but it's never on a sheepskin. Um, and so, uh, now I've lost what I was saying. What was I saying? How many ethnic groups? Well, they came up with uh, very large numbers, you know, in thousands and thousands. For instance, in my part of the world called Idaho, there are some Basque separatists who left Spain because they were getting hassled by the government and they went to Idaho as sheep herders. And my dad learned how to make coffee over a campfire because that's the way they did it. And my mother said it was terrible. But my dad said, no, it's good. This is what the Basques did. So... By technical definition, these Spanish-speaking Basques in the deserts of Idaho would be an ethnos, a people group. Somebody's got to go to them and talk to them in language, in Spanish, that they would understand. So there's groups like that all around the world. There's even groups up here in the north of England. And so um, I got despondent at that point. But as time went on, Wycliffe Bible translators and many agencies and many other people were discovering and reaching groups. And I'll just, uh, before I end, because I am looking at the clock, um, 
I'll just give you one story of one ethnos that was on God's heart more than our hearts. I was at the airport in Izmir waiting for to talk to a friend, so he showed up. He wasn't coming in or out. It was just the airport was a good rendezvous point. And uh, he happened to be a Bible translator. He's now part of our Bible translation team, but he wasn't then. He's just an old friend. And we were sitting there talking. And then, surprise, surprise, Eno called me, our friend Eno. And I forget which, which country he was in. And he was talking to me about a dream that one of his local pastors had. And this pastor, in the middle of the night, heard the word, uh, no guy, no guy. He said, what, why am I thinking of this word, no guy? He got up in the morning and he googled, no guy. And he found out that the no guy are a people group on the western side of the Caspian Sea, right here. And this person having the dream lived on the eastern side of the Caspian Sea. But never the twain shall meet. I mean, I've flown over the Caspian. It looks, you can't see this from shore to shore. It's just, it looks like you're in op- over open ocean. And I said, to, this is still on the television. I said, well, you know, that's really great. The, uh, the no guy. And God woke him up to tell him that this other group exists. And then my friend at the airport, the translator, he, he cut in. He said, George, do you realize that I'm the translator for the No Guy New Testament? And I said, oh, no. So we told, we told Eno. I think I put uh, my friend on the line to Eno. And now my translator friend is working on the Old Testament. He's done Psalms. He's done Psalm 2 and No Guy. And so that to me is an indication that God is interested in all of these ethnic groups. Amen? And there's other stories that we could tell, but we're running out of time, and my notes have fallen on the floor. So uh, what I want to do in closing is I have here in my pocket, I have several crosses. And as we finish with prayers... I want people in their spirits, if God is telling them another place, I don't mean Bermuda because you like to holiday there. I mean, if God wants to send you to Bermuda, that's fine. But I want us to hear from God about other ethnic groups that haven't been reached. Maybe as tiny as Bhutan. Maybe hitting in plain sight. Maybe right here in the north of England, there is a group that nobody has ever approached. And the gospel isn't something that is edible or compatible to them. Okay? So I'm going to ask for one verse to come up on the screen. This is the only thing you get on the screen today. This is Isaiah 45:22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Now, this term for Emmanuel, regions beyond, I tried to find regions beyond in Scripture. Maybe it's there, but I didn't find it. But ends of the earth 
appears everywhere. So subtitles to Emmanuel Durham, Regents Beyond, subtitles in small print, we could say, to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. So, uh, so this is God calling out to the ends of the earth. I am God and there is no other. And he wants everybody to be saved. So this is God's prayer for the world. I want us now to stand and make it our prayer. Let's just read this out and then I'm going to ask people just to lead out in prayer as God is speaking to them. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So let's just speak out in English or whatever else you have and call out to the Lord for the nations, for the ethnos, for the goyum. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. You're calling these nations to yourself. You're calling people groups to yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Okay, let's keep praying. If someone wants to pray out loud, we'll just listen and say amen. But there might be someone here this morning who is saying, well, I need to be saved myself. I'm not a co-heir with Christ. I don't really understand all this business about the nations. But I'm in a pickle, and I want to, I want to be saved. Then you can come to the front, and one of the leaders will pray with you and show you that there is a way to God and the door is open. So we're making that available to be saved today. So let's continue to reach out to God and let our church reach to places that have never been reached before. Lord, we want to be an ends of the earth church. We want to be to the ends of the earth. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us, Lord.